today is Shaheen Shan, who I don't even know where, Shaheen, I begin to define you because you're an author. You're just about to sign a movie deal. You're the CEO and chairman of Accelerated Intelligence. But I know you're also ranked as number one as an Amazon accelerator. So, uh, and that doesn't even begin to tell your extraordinary life story. So welcome to the show. Great to see you. Great to see you, Richard. Am I to understand you're an attorney yourself? Uh, you know, I, I am an attorney by training. I don't uh, practice, but uh, yes, I have the Juris Doctorate, uh, although that sheepskin is nowhere on the wall. Gotcha. Gotcha. I love that. Um, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you an interesting story about me before we, we get into this, and I, I am a huge fan of the law. I love law. Um, and all things related to it. And when I had started my first company, and we can go into the story, you know, I created a billion dollars worth of revenue in my teens, uh, creating this legal version of a uh, illegal drug. And I remember there was a time where lawsuits were just flying. And I didn't realize, I thought you would have to wrong somebody in order to get a lawsuit, I was really wrong because there was all these vulture lawyers, and this was at a time where the employment practices laws were coming into place. So there was all these people who I never met, who I had never had any transacting with, who were suing me. And I remember – and this, this kind of goes into my whole philosophy about hacking life. I just got tired of paying the fucking legal bills because my legal bills were insane. It was back in the 90s, and I think it was at some point like 50000 or $100,000 a week in attorney's fees. I had in-house counsel. I had attorneys all over the place. And we got this massive lawsuit from some mega like firm, and it was like backed by a bunch of people, and I don't even remember what it was about. But what I remember is I told my attorney, don't worry about it. He's like, no, we got to file a response. We got to do this. I said, don't fucking worry about it. I got it covered. So what are you going to do? I was a real loose cannon in those days. Mind you, teenager, long hair, defiant to no end, didn't give a fuck about what anybody thought about me, zero background in law. And so I sent my secretary at the time. This was right before when secretaries were still a thing. To go to the store and buy a bag of crayons and some colored drawing paper. And I just started handwrite drawing notes and I cut pictures of myself from different magazine articles. And for the people that are watching, I'm showing you right now, there's a picture of me in a pink robe with long hair and started writing in crayons. I'm so excited to see you in court. I'm representing myself in pro se. And I signed it in different colored crayons, and I made a beautiful envelope with that same kind of construction paper the kids use in kindergarten, and I mailed it. And as soon as the word got out that I was near clinically insane, those lawsuits started dropping off. It was the most miraculous thing. My attorney was like, we were going to have you – institutionalized but i don't know what you did but the majority of them fell off just because they were like we don't want to fuck with this guy he's absolutely fucking nuts 
Well, you know, a couple of questions there, or a couple of points there. One, I remember uh, doing work for one of the largest TV networks in Mexico, and the CEO had a similar frustration to yours, which is, and you would call it the success tax. That is, you don't think you're a target until suddenly you've achieved, you know, the dream, and there you are. It's true. It's true. And that's why most CEOs that are where they're at, we, th- we tend to think that people that are CEOs are these people that have gone to school and done, you know, the things by the book and they come out like this. No bullshit. And I teach this all the time to my students, my students in my Amazon course, is that those guys are the smartest guys in the room for a reason. And that reason is not that they've played by the rules. The reason is they didn't think outside the box. They crushed the fucking box. These are real next-level thinkers. Anytime I'm in a room with a C-suite CEO of a real company, I'm not talking about dude that's like, yo, man, I'm CEO of Double Shade Records. I'm talking about like legit CEOs of Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies. Those guys are fucking smart. And they're smart because they did not play by the rules. They're smart because they found a hack, a workaround. And this is kind of what led us to this whole philosophy of Amazon Mastery and our our whole, whole principle now of hacking systems and kind of getting in there and finding unconventional workarounds, which is the definition of a hack, to traditional thinking. It's what works best. So, Shaheen, let's go in the Wayback Machine and tell your life story because it's a remarkable one. Uh, and I'd even like to go back before you were 15. You come to this country when what, you're five, six years old. Uh, and as uh, as you would say, you crushed it. Yeah. I started as a adolescent in Iran at five. I was born in Iran. We moved to Los Angeles eventually as refugees. We were uh, political refugees when we moved here and solidly poor here in Iran. We were well to do here. We were poor and we managed somehow to buy a house in an up and coming neighborhood, an enclave of Los Angeles called Pacific Palisades, which at the time was more hippie than up and coming. And my folks managed to buy a house that was an absolute disaster of a house in those days. And pretty soon around us, I saw huge houses going up. I saw great wealth coming in. It was the Reaganomics era, trickle-down economics, Wall Street wealth. Uh, Hollywood was at an all-time high. All this money was coming in. But I was still the, the poor son of a dry cleaners. The kids growing up around me, their folks had Mercedes Benzes. They would go out to restaurants. I always tell the story of, uh, a kid I met at school was like, hey, come over. My folks are out. And I came over. I was like, all right, what are we going to do? He's like, oh, my dad gave me a credit card. We could go do whatever we want. And I said, what? He said, yeah, you can. we can go to uh, you know, whatever, the deli down the street, Mort's Deli or whatever it was called at that time. And we went down there, and I was like, hold on. This is nuts. You're telling me I can order a hamburger and a pizza at the same time, and that man will bring it to me. And once it is brought to me, you will give him that plastic card, and that's it. He's like, yeah, yeah, get whatever you want. Get whatever you want. Get some stuff for tonight, too. And I thought to myself, this is glorious. We always ate at home. The clothes that we had, we never bought new clothes. My dad worked at a dry cleaner's. We had to wait for somewhat cool-looking people to walk in and cross our fingers and pray that they didn't pay their bills 
and to leave behind their clothes because those would be the clothes that would be passed down to us. So we would always be walking through school with clothes that were one or two sizes too big or one or two sizes too small. If we got lucky, something might fit. And that was, you know, kind of the, the, the way that we came up, that we grew up, but we were growing up around all this wealth. And I decided that I would like to have a piece of this wealth. I wanted to be rich. And I went to my parents and I said, mom, dad, how do I get that? They laughed and they said, well, you know, son, and this is what all immigrant families want for their kids is the pinnacle height of success that we could ever reach to be a doctor. Dad thought for a minute and he said, the only way is to become a doctor. You have to go become a doctor. Look at Mr. Rafsani down the street. He is doctor. He has bins. He has house. Be like him. I thought, all right, cool. Let's do that. I want to be a doctor. How, how do you be a doctor? It's nice. You get to cut people up. You get money. You get all that. And then I looked at the dude and I was like, man, that dude is bald. That dude is fat. He is a bundle of nerves. The whole family doesn't look healthy. He leaves at 5 a.m. He does not own his time. And he comes back at 8 or 9 p.m. And he's always fucking grumpy. He's the most curmudgeonly human being I've ever met. That's not going to work. I said, well, how long does it take to become a doctor? Like, oh, you know, 10, 12 years. Then you got to pay off your debt another few years. You got to intern. You got to start a practice. You know, by the time you're 50, 40s, 50s, solid, you should be able to have the house. But here's the thing. You don't own that house. The bank owns the house. The bank owns the car. And you just pay off this debt. And I thought, well, that's still selling my fucking hours. I'm out. And I left. Previously, I had a little bit of experience in my adolescence in business, and I'll explain why. When we moved here, I started an illicit products business in my adolescence in elementary school, in grade school. And I had a a bunch of misfits that were working with me, my employees at that time. Everybody had something wrong with them. That's why we were such misfits. And we would go to the local liquor stores. We had a little kid with us, a little Greek kid. He was tiny and cute, so nobody suspected him of anything. He slid right under the metal detectors at the stores in those days. And we would create a distraction, and he would steal nudie magazines, and he would steal all the uh, little bottles of alcohol, the glue, the uh, cigarettes, whatever he could get his hands on, cigars he would pump, and then we would sell it through school. Great business, made a lot of money. Only problem was we were all horrible at crime. I mean probably the worst band of criminals you could ever imagine because we would always get caught. Everybody hated us. Everybody was looking for a reason to blame us. We had no business being in the business of crime. Crime was not a thing for us, but we just kept doing it. We'd always end up in detention, and in detention, we'd meet more soon-to-be criminals that became other customers. So while lucrative, no business being in crime. Well, from that point, we moved on, and I was 15 years old thinking I want to find wealth fortune, all the great things that America offers. Books were my friends. I read books by Napoleon Hill, books by Ogmandino, all the great old-time writers of that time. I read Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer and all the personal development guys, this other guy named Stuart Wilde. I read his books, and I thought, man, you know what? I'm, I'm going to leave home, and I left home. I, I left, 
and I was sleeping at that time in abandoned buildings or buildings that were under construction. Los Angeles was in a huge building boom at that time. Uh, so I realized that I could get into these buildings late at night when the brokers weren't in there, wake up in the morning before they got there, and I'd be out, and I'd be living in luxury houses. Maybe there wasn't electricity or water in those days in, in some of the places because they weren't built yet, but it was a, a safe place to lay my head. And subsequent to that, I realized that uh, there was a big electronic music scene. I, I had found a mentor, a guy who had agreed to take me under his wing, and he was very familiar with the electronic music scene, the rave scene, the dance scene. So I got involved in that. I started throwing some clubs to make a little bit of extra money. I was still sleeping wherever I could lay my head. And I remember that I would sleep behind the speakers. Most people don't know this. In front of speakers, very loud, very hard to sleep. Behind speakers, super quiet and very warm. So I would sleep behind the speakers. I would wake up. The club would still be going on. And I started looking around thinking, how is the money being made in these places? To realize only that it was by the drug dealers. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Here is the teenage me, the 15-year-old me, standing up, looking at a man with tattoos on his face down to his neck, gold teeth, a sizable, formidable bodyguard or two around him, and all the trappings of wealth, the Rolex watches, the gold chains, the fancy car, all that stuff, and thinking to myself, this fucking guy is the only one making money at this place. At that time, Richard, there was a drug called ecstasy or MDMA, one of the most popular drugs. It was outlawed in the United States. It was scheduled, I believe, sometime in 1983, 1985. Sometime in the 80s, ecstasy was banned. It went underground, um, was made illegal. And what happened was that this particular drug was very difficult to synthesize. So the supply mostly came from outside the U.S., Europe. And because of the whole Reagan, say no to drugs era, you know, the Nancy Reagan, say no to drugs period of time, they were really cracking down. And the supply had dried up. They had really put a stop on drugs coming into the United States. The drug dealers were out of drugs, and the people who wanted them couldn't get them. So there was a huge demand, but very little supply. Noticing this, I thought to myself, what if – I could create a legal safe version to ecstasy that didn't have side effects, that was non-injurious to people, that people could use to enjoy, but that wouldn't land anybody in jail. Because thinking back to my uh, lurid history in crime, that that definitely wasn't something I should take up again. So I went about the process of making it. I, I managed to get myself a girlfriend who managed to allow me to sneak into her house when her dad was at work. And I would be cooking it up in the kitchen with her making prototypes until we got a formula that worked, and it worked really fucking well. We invited people from all over the neighborhood to come over and try it. All the, the teenagers from the neighborhood were overtaking it, and we were like, wow, this stuff really works. So I found myself in the club face-to-face with the biggest ecstasy dealer of the 1990s as a kid, sweating, broke, 
with a bag filled with these tiny little baggies. And I walked up to him, and I knew that this was going to be a moment of great tension. And he said, yeah, what do you need? You know, I don't have any any E's left. They called ecstasy E. I said, that's all right. I'm not looking. I don't do drugs. I'm not looking to do drugs. He's like, well, what the fuck are you doing here? I said, look, man, I got something for you to sell. What do you got? I said, you know, and I, it took me a minute, and I just said, I looked at him blank face, and I said, herbal ecstasy. He said, what? And I said, yeah, herbal ecstasy. So well, what's that shit? And I said, look, it's all natural. Gives you a tingly high. It's fantastic. Makes you feel euphoric. It's just like ecstasy. But the good part is you can't go to jail. And he goes, fuck off. Are you a cop? I said, nope, definitely not a cop. Get out of here. And the bodyguard came. And I just realized that I wasn't moving. I should have been terrified. I was, you know, sweating bullets at that time. But I wasn't moving. And as the tension got thicker and thicker, I noticed a couple customers walking up to him. And he deliberated what to do and what not to do. Clearly, they wanted to buy goods from him. Clearly, he didn't have any. And he motioned over to me. I handed him one baggie of our pills. He took the entire backpack and said, come back in two hours. You better not be fucking with me. Now, I was thinking to myself at that time that, I probably am going to die tonight. This will be the night. In the 1980s, having tattoos on your face and neck was a sign of clinical insanity. Now, if you have tattoos on your neck and face, they call you Post Malone and you get a platinum record. That did not happen in the 80s. This was the sign of a man that was seriously disturbed. He had the three little tears on his face, which I think you get in jail for killing people or for something something to that extent. So he was a real serious dude. And he, I don't think he ever smiled. Came back a couple hours later, and the bodyguard moved away. He motioned for me to come forward, and I was thinking of every apology I could possibly give him to save my life. I was going to apologize. I was going to move back home. I was going to be a good boy. I was going to go to school. I was going to become a doctor. Life was going to be right on. If God, if you just, and I did not believe in God at that time, uh, God, if you just let me get through this one thing, just this one thing, I will, I will behave. And in that moment, I looked at him and there was a minute of silence. He stared at me for a minute as he sized me up and he says, you're not scared of anything, are you? And I said, well, well, I do. I wouldn't go that far. He said, kid, when can you get me more? And I realized we had been successful. He had sold out completely. And it went from one guy to 10 guys to 1,000 guys to 10,000 guys. A lot of them became legitimized. Like you ever see the, uh, the Godfather, I think it was the third one, where he talks about how he's got all this La Cosa Nostra guys, that their ultimate goal is to become legitimized and to have legitimate businesses so they can hide their ill-gotten gains. Well, that worked really well in the 1990s with my product because a lot of these guys who didn't have inventory to sell anymore – we're now able to start distributorships. A lot of them opened up franchise stores. And before I knew it, we were in 30,000 stores all over the world. We were in 32 countries. I had offices in Tokyo and Paris, you name it, Germany and Berlin. We were everywhere. And I remember walking into my office. Now, mind you, six months before, I was sleeping in abandoned buildings. I was eating tortillas and relish because that was what I could afford. I was sleeping where I could lay my head. I had no money to my name. Now I'm running a company 
with anybody in Venice Beach that could fog up a mirror, I would hire them because we could not have enough employees at that in those days. This is pre-internet. We're talking early 90s. And I walk into my office and the news breaks. The news breaks that we had broken the billion dollar mark in sales. Sam Donaldson, the great reporter of Nightline, was in a limo outside waiting to interview me. Montel Williams had sent me tickets to his show in New York and LA Times, New York Times, two Newsweek covers, Details Magazine, all over the country. It was huge, a huge phenomenon. Now, in that moment I walked in, I was pale-faced. I was having a panic attack. Why? Because I did not know how much a billion dollars was. Not metaphorically, not hypothetically, an actual million dollars of money. I did not know how much money that actually was. Literally, I did not understand how much a billion dollars was. And people calmed me down. They were like, look, you'll have time. You'll figure it out. They're not going to ask you that. They want the long-haired kid that's defying the government that's selling all over the place on TV, and I did. And it was an absolute wild ride, and you know, I write about it in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. For anybody that's interested, it's out now. The book is on Audible, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You get the first chapter for free and, of course, on Amazon. So shameless plug for my book. So, Shaheen, a couple of uh, thoughts there, um, and thank you for the shameless uh, pitch uh, for the book. But I'm listening to you, and I'm trying to think, okay, let's see. You sound a little bit like Arlo Guthrie, you know, because you keep referring to kid, kid, get out of here. You know, kid, what, what's going on? Two, you also sound like John Newton, who would uh, you know, go on to write Amazing Grace, but like you, a non-believer, and only it was that cataclysmic moment that changed him from sea captain to preacher. Uh, mm. And I'm wondering, here you are, and you had this interest in uh, the medical profession, at least from a theoretical point of view. But how did you create something that was legal, safe, effective? I mean, and you're what, you know, 15 years old. How do you do that? That is the first question that everybody asks me, even people who don't know me. You know, I trained Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I was in class the other day, and somebody asked, "Hey, I saw you on TV or something," and I said, "Yeah, I did an interview." And that's the first question that most people ask me. Pretty interesting. The answer is this. It doesn't fucking matter, but I'll tell you how. The reason it doesn't matter is because I could have decided to do anything at that time. The fact that I had burned my ships, I had left home as a teenager, as a 15-year-old kid. Go find a 15-year-old kid now on the street and say, hey, leave your family, go out on the street and start a business. It's, it's a different world. I had burned my ships. I was out there to succeed or die. Nobody was going to tell me no. And I was ready and willing to figure out whatever I needed to do at that time in order to succeed. Now, I didn't have to do everything that I was willing to do, but I was willing to do whatever it took. That was the ultimate secret. So what did I do practically? I picked up the Yellow Pages. Remember Yellow Pages? We used to have these big fucking books. They were like a billion pages long. What a waste of paper. And you'd go through and you'd find people. So I started looking up herbalists. I went down to Chinatown and I'd walk in and I found authors, people that have written books on the stuff. And I walked in and they said, what the fuck is this guy? And I said, okay, but I'm not leaving until I get what I want. And sometimes they would kick me out and they'd say, fuck off. And sometimes they would just be floored. They would be like, 
I can't believe that there's a 15 year old kid who want this is so ridiculous. I have to help him. You know, sometimes you ever see those kids that are like selling magazine subscriptions door to door. They're selling like candy bars or whatever. And you're always like, no, no, I'm good. I don't want any fucking Kit Kats. Right. But occasionally you'll meet one where you see the hunger in his eyes and you see the temporariness of his situation where you're like, man, if he just takes that energy, that cunning, that aggressiveness that he has and applies it to a bigger game, he could really do something. And that was me. And when people saw that, people smell it. People smell the hunger. People smell the relentlessness. I'm, I'm a big fan of science and things that are provable and double blind and all that stuff. But there is something to the human nature, something to the human spirit that's indescribable, that is just not quantifiable. And that was the thing. And I managed to influence people. I went up to people and I influenced them. I didn't have money. Money, as one of my first mentors had taught me, is one of the easiest ways to influence people. If you want somebody to do something, to give you something that they have, the easiest way is to give them money. It's not the only way. So I, I worked for people sometimes. I'd say, hey, man, your, uh, your, your herbal shop looks disgusting. I'll clean it up for you. You give me some herbs or front me some herbs. Let me go sell them. And when I sell them, I'll bring you money. Why should you trust me? Give it a shot. You got nothing to lose. And I wouldn't move. It would be the same stick-to-itiveness that I had, the same grit and relentlessness when I walked up to that first drug dealer who was a killer of people and propositioned him to effectively become my employee. And when you have that drive, and this is why I say it doesn't fucking matter. When you have that drive, when you have that hunger, when you have that relentlessness, that cunning, it's very difficult for the world to prove you wrong. Walter Isaacson, the great biographer, he wrote the biography on Einstein and the biography of Steve Jobs, which was spectacular. I know you're a student of history, so I'm sure you've, you've read some of his work wrote about this thing that Steve Jobs had called this reality distortion field. And people would walk in and they'd be like, all right, we're in a meeting. This was cool. Steve Jobs. And he'd be like, great guys. You know, we need this phone. We need it to have no buttons. Nothing like this existed. And you could touch the screen and the phone will, it'll have an iPod in it. It'll, it'll play music and it'll be a phone. And yeah, by the way, we need it to send emails and surf the web and do all those things three times faster than all the other companies. Um, you guys make that happen. All the engineers sitting there going, oh, yeah, cool, man. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have it by the end of next summer. No problem. And Steve Jobs would say, very fucking funny. I need it in two weeks. That's when the presentation is. Have it ready. And they'd all be like, uh, okay, I guess we could do that. Yeah. And he'd leave, and they would all be going, what the fuck just happened? It's the reality distortion field. And you don't have to be Steve Jobs to have it. You just have to have an unflinching, unwavering, belief in yourself and not be shaken by the storms that come, like you said. You know, uh, uh, Shaheen, one of the things that's so interesting here, you're talking about one, on the one hand, the importance of EQ, the stuff you can't measure, but that emotional intelligence, which is where most people live, but they just don't listen to their subconscious. And then two, you know, Steve Jobs, I love that example because his genius was not in being an engineer. He wasn't an engineer. His genius was he was a Buddhist, 
and he understood to spend the world inside the head of the people he was speaking to. In his case, the customers. What did they need? Everybody else, you know, Research in Motion was selling ultimately to engineers. Uh, everybody else, you know, Radio Shack should have been the first genius bar, but they were selling to what we used to call nerds back in, you know, tech nerds back in the day. Jobs understood where he needed, from, from whose eyes he needed to see the world. That is true. That is true. It's funny that you mentioned Radio Shack. What a great company with Tandy, realistic. They really were a forerunner in that era, but then they took a fucking dive. They they couldn't keep up with the times. It's funny. Uh, a joke that we had going all the time about Radio Shack towards the end was Radio Shack. You've got questions. We've got questions. Because you would walk in and they wouldn't know anything anymore. They just want to sell you cell phones. Well, uh, uh, think about this. Of course, if you look at some of these great companies, and for our grandfathers, you know, in America, it was well, blue chips, right? Buy blue chips because they'll always be safe. Everything's going to stay the same. But if you look at Radio Shack, leader in the market, Sears, basically invented the internet 120 years ago with that. You know, you, you talk about the phone book being thick. The Sears catalog, right? Everyone waited for their Christmas and Hanukkah gifts for the catalog to arrive in July. Avon, which uh, allowed, you know, the first direct selling, right, direct uh, marketing and selling. Kodak, who had the patent on the digital photography but was making too much money in development. And the list goes on and on. These companies that were leading, I mean, Blockbuster, they laughed at uh, at what Reed Hastings was trying to do with his upstart company, you know, uh, Netflix. And you see that over and over again, the inability to change. And yet you were, I don't want to say quite born with it, but uh, pretty close. Yeah, I'm a absolute failure at the majority of things I do in life. Really fucking bad at 99.9% of things that I do. There's 0.1% that I'm really fucking good. Probably better than most people on the planet. But the rest of the stuff, absolute failure. The wife makes fun of me. I can't drive a nail through a piece of wood. I'm good at hiring people. And your example of engineering is a, is a really good example of that. You can buy engineers. You can buy a guy that's been MIT trained. That's well, what do you got to pay the guy? Three hundred grand a year? Five hundred grand a year? It's even a million dollars a year for a rocket scientist? You fine. It's much easier to make an extra five hundred million dollars a year when you're running a company to pay these guys than it is to do what they do and go to school and the heavy thinking, the heavy lifting. It's what Napoleon Hill called uh, specialized knowledge in his book Think and Grow Rich. But we talk about, in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult, a three-step plan, which feeds in nicely to this. And it's something a, a friend of mine, Wayne Boss, taught us, which is knowledge, courage, and action. When you are faced with a problem, a challenge, a project that needs to be undertaken, you need to have knowledge. Knowledge can be bought. Knowledge can be borrowed. Knowledge can be stolen. Knowledge can be rented. Okay. In my case, I went out there. I rented it. I talked to people. I didn't have money, but I convinced them to give me that knowledge. How do you make a pill that has the effects of ecstasy without the side effects and is legal with herbs that we have today? Great. I got that knowledge. What does knowledge do? Knowledge gives you courage. Knowledge, courage, action. Once you know how to jump out of a plane with a parachute, it's not as scary as if you're just jumping out and you have no idea what thing to pull or what to do. 
That takes us to the third pillar, action. You could have knowledge. You could have courage. But if you do not take action, nothing happens. You have to be able to fail in order to succeed. So with those three things, anything is possible. Do you, you talked about the 99% that you're not good at, and you also talked about courage, which is not the absence of fear. It's a willingness to face failure, to be a phoenix and rise from the ashes. Talk about that comfort level you have with recognizing all the things you're not good at, but the confidence you have in that 1%, and talk about the 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 absence of succumbing to your failure, because I think that those are the handcuffs that limit most people. Yeah, I think what was it, Library of Alexandria, or it was in one of those great books, I think that one of the great philosophers wrote about, there's Latin saying, no thes sutan, I'm probably butchering that, which means know thyself. And it's one of the most profound things. You think, why did they put this in all these like amazing places? Why was this such an important saying? Because... Ultimately, success in life, in my opinion, comes from self-reflection. Everything is about self-reflection. When you find people that are that, when you find people that have a particular trait of being successful, it's not that they just fell into that and got lucky. It's because they've reflected back. When you look at people that are self-realized, self-realization comes through self-reflection. You look at somebody, one of my all-time heroes of all time is this guy, Alan Watts. Alan Watts was a philosopher. Are you familiar with Alan Watts at all? Yeah. Alan Watts was a philosopher in the 1950s and 1960s, all the way up until I think the 70s when he passed away in I think close to 73, who was responsible for bringing the wisdom of the East, Zen philosophy, to the West. And he did it in such a digestible way that even today people are remixing his words, his spoken word, along with electronic dance music. But Watts was really uh, um, one of the most self-realized people of his time because he took that opportunity to self-reflect, not only on his strengths, but also on his weaknesses. And similarly, I learned early on that it's not as important to learn what you're good at because, like we said, you can hire people that are good at the things that you are not good at. But it is important to know what things you suck at, what things you are horrible at, what things you will never be great at. Not because you put yourself down, not because you're down on yourself, but because then you have a true knowledge of yourself and you can act closer to truth. You can reflect on, hey, man, that didn't work out for me. It's because I tried that thing that I'm not very good at. Now, maybe I want to gain that skill set. Maybe it's valuable for me to become better at it. Maybe it sparks joy in my life to learn some new skill sets and become good at it, and you can. There is that 10,000-hour rule that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. And a bunch of other principles. I, I truly believe that if you're a lifelong learner, that you can learn anything. And there, there really is something to that. But I also think that you shouldn't learn everything. You should stay as specialized as possible in the thing that you're great at and try to grow that. Shaheen, let me ask you. I've, you know, I've watched clips of you speaking. You and I talked pre-show. You obviously have just a modicum of energy here from uh, this podcast. 
What about the dark moments when doubt has crept in? Have you ever had that thousand-yard stare where even the shaving or the showering in the morning feels so difficult? Have you ever been there when you've had those moments where life gets turned on its head? Sure. I talk about one in my book where a mysterious man shows up at my office. Mind you, I was maybe early 20s, maybe late teens. He's got a uh, a duffel bag with a million dollars in cash and an invitation to go to Japan, to Tokyo, on a private plane. What do you do? I went. Turns out that the mob was interested in taking over my company. Maybe not the best move. Maybe maybe it was an okay move. And there were several moments of self-doubt. I mean, I could have potentially been killed. So there was a lot of that. But during my time as a founder of a company, as a young you know, guy who had no education, there were lots of times like that. There was a time where uh, an employee who I loved and cared for, I paid for his kids to go to school, I took care of his folks uh, as far as you know, making sure they were housed and their health care was taken care of. And he ended up stealing over a million dollars worth of merchandise from me at that time. And I remember it was devastating, not because of the million dollars. We were making hundreds of millions uh, in those days, but because that product ended up in the black market. And on the black market, that reduced the value of our product. So that million dollars reflected hundreds of millions of dollars of loss. Not only that, there was a great betrayal which is an, an issue when you are young. And I, I always had this philosophy of what I called suicide margins. And what I mean by that is that I solved every problem by making more money. And it is a valid way to solve problems because if you can solve it with money, it's not really a problem, first and foremost. And secondly, it was easy for me in those days to make money. And it was easier for me to make money than it was to solve a lot of these problems any other way. And that's that's what I did. I would throw money at everything because we had so much money. How much money could you possibly want? You know, the company had broken a billion dollars in revenue. I had literally duffel bags of cash sitting everywhere. I had houses on the beach, I had cars, you know, I was on yachts and private planes and we did all that stuff. So if you can take that money and throw it at some problems, it makes things go easier. Now that comes with its own series of complications and if I could do it again, I would do it differently. I would be a little bit smarter. I would seek mentorship. I would create masterminds. I would build more circles of trust around myself, but hindsight's twenty twenty. So let's talk about that for a few moments, because I think so many people think, you know, that winning the lottery, you take your pick on what you mean by what kind of lottery. But, you know, in your case, you won the, an entrepreneurial lottery, if you will, that they think that winning the lottery is the key to happiness. And yet, what is it, 50 percent of people who actually win the state lotteries or the, the national lottery are broke within, what, three years, they're unhappy, they're depressed, that they find that so much money so fast isn't all that helpful. You just alluded to you would have done things differently and you you had some nice soft answers there. But 
you know, what are some of the key lessons that you learned at an emotional level? Because here you are going from sleeping on the beach to having so much money in cash, you don't even have time to get it properly uh, into banks or other economic instruments. So what the question is? Well, the the question is, do you have any more of those bags? Um, but no, the, the the question is, are there, you know, when you reach this level of success and you found that there were, it came with new problems, did, what were some of, you know, and I'm sure some of these lessons took a while to achieve and required reflection, but what are some of the existential lessons that you learned? Because you achieved both a level of challenge when you were a young immigrant child with parents who had suffered through a remarkably challenging period going from one country where Farsi is the primary language to a country where it's English, where you go from a family that's well-to-do to suddenly struggling to, I don't know what your father's profession was, but then becoming a dry cleaner when he came to the United States. And then here you have this meteoric rise in the other direction. And I just wonder what are some of the things you obviously have gathered so many business lessons and you generously share them in so many different on, on so many different platforms. But I'm wondering some of those sort of aha lessons that you have that maybe you just share with yourself sometimes. Great question. I think one of the best ones is trust but verify. I had another teacher of mine, this writer named Stuart Wilde, who became a mentor of mine for a period of time, always said, don't play your hunch. It'll have your lunch. I'm not sure if that was his quote, but it made sense. He taught us a lot of the fundamental principles of money through playing blackjack, believe it or not. He felt that life and business was very much like a casino. And if you could learn how to master that type of interaction, that you'd be able to handle business. So we did a lot of work inside casinos where we went into casinos and learned how to literally gamble and play blackjack. And I have a friend who's a, still an instructor. Under He was under Stuart Wilde. He, he learned how to play blackjack and poker and all those games. But I'll tell it to you this way. I'll, I'll, let me tell you a story, and I'll tell you tell you what I think. So I decided that I was going to change things up. Every once in a while, I'd go nuts, and I'd just be like, we need to change everything. This is all fucking wrong. So I told all my employees that we're getting rid of all the furniture, and I got rid of every stick of furniture in the building. 200 employees. I told everybody, get some beanbags. You're going to be sitting on the floor. And this was right at the time where computers had just come out. So we were putting the computers on the floor. People were not happy about this, but no people knew how quick I was to fire people in those days. So they refused to talk back to me. And I had the whole top floor of this building for my own office. And I just had stuff everywhere. It was just madness. You know, there's piles of shit everywhere. And I had a beautiful dog in those days, one of my only trusted friends. And the dog came in and knocked over a pile of papers. And I reached down into those papers to notice a check. I said, oh, shit, I forgot to cash a check. I looked at it, and it was a million-dollar check, a check for a million dollars of money. And I just threw it back on the pile and went back to doing what I'm doing. And it was only later on where I realized – Oh shit, that was, I should probably cash that at some point. It took me months to cash it. That was the kind of money that we had coming in. On a, on another note, 
I had a big distributor that was trying to negotiate with us. It was a foreign distributor. I forget which country, but some foreign country. And I remember I did the crayon thing again. And back in those days, we had fax machines because email hadn't been fully adopted yet. And they sent some crazy offer that I wasn't willing to accept. And the lawyers wanted to jump all over and counter and do this and that. And I just grabbed the sheet of paper. I wrote with crayon, thank you, but no thank you, with a smiley face and send it to them by fax. And it had the exact effect that I wanted to. They panicked. Their lawyers were calling. They said, no, 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 sorry, that offer wasn't whatever. We don't understand what this means. What does this mean? And they they ended up coming to our uh, coming to our side for and under the terms that we wanted. They gave us everything that we wanted in that negotiation. And it's one of the biggest lessons, I think, for me is that life in general, it's not serious. Business is not serious. It's all a play. It's all a game. It doesn't matter at what level you're at. Everybody thinks they're a fucking imposter. I've talked to Fortune 50 CEOs, C-level executives where they're like, dude, they like think I know this shit. I don't find – I'm making it up as I fucking go along, Shaheen. I say, wow, and you're the CEO of so-and-so company. Holy shit. I work with guys like this all the time that come to me. So the greatest human disease, the greatest thing I think that can hold you back not only in life but particularly in business is seriousness. Seriousness is a disease. You got to relax. You got to be able to enjoy things and not take things so seriously, not lean into things so much. Let things come to you. It's what Professor Caldini talks about in his book, Persuasion. Caldini, being the great professor that wrote the canon on influence, also talks about persuading, talks about the greatest sales are made before the guy, before the the prospect ever comes to you. And it's all part of this process. But when you see somebody that takes themselves terribly seriously, it actually makes me shudder a little bit. I'm like, holy fuck, this person is like incredibly formal, incredibly uptight, probably has a carrot up their ass. And they're walking with this like funny walk, like, and you know, their, their shirt's buttoned too tight. Like it's the worst thing in the world, the worst thing in the world. So you start by not taking yourself and the world so seriously. That's, that's, I think, the biggest lesson. It's, you know, it's a great lesson. We could do a whole show just on that because I think it's a challenge for so many of us. And it's one that's easier when you're printing money than when you're not. And, you know, as Mae West said, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better. Uh, it gives one a lot of options. I, but there is, there's so much wisdom in that, and you're right. And, you know, the story that you told about uh, everyone's faking it, at the end of law school, I had a law professor, uh, Bert Wexler, may he rest in peace, and he says at, towards the very last, one of the last classes, and he said, who here is faking it as he stands at the front of the class? And he just waited. Finally, one courageous hand went up, and then another, and another, and finally every hand in the class was raised and his point of course was the same as yours which is we're all doing the best we can with what we know at the time but of course we're all faking it and i think uh, shaheen one of the things that you are teaching us is how to fake it brilliantly and successfully and i don't mean faking it in the manipulative and malicious way but in the courageous way that says 
we'll get there and I'll know more when I get there than I do right now, but I know just enough to take this dive. It's true. It's true. That's the only way you can dare to dream big. So, Shaheem, we have gone well past the length of the show. We could, uh, I'd love to keep you on here for another uh, 48 minutes. Um, so we'll just, we'll resolve that by having you on again uh, in the future. And I'll look forward to it. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today.